When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alright, welcome to the 21st episode of the What If Football 2022 World Cup Daily Podcast. We have got our eight quarter-finalists, seven group winners, one group runner-up, and for only the fourth time, one of African persuasion, and for the very first time, one of Arab persuasion, as Morocco stunned Spain on penalties, and we had the small matter of Cristiano Ronaldo being dropped for Portugal, and Portugal then going on to score six past Switzerland. We've got it all and more. Let's get stuck in. we are here on the Sports Social Podcast Network, just as we are on anywhere else. You get your podcasts really, as well as YouTube with this World Cup Daily Podcast. Throughout the rest days with World Cup Rewinds, I'll mention more later on, and right up until the final, of course. Right in your ears, 5am every single day. We're also on Patreon, that is What If Football www.patreon.com forward slash what if football. It's been a long day with the World Cup Great Games podcasts with podcasts of great games from the history of World Cup football, of course. And on YouTube, we have combined 11s and predictors from YouTube Shorts, Football Manager International Challenges and the What If Football Alternate Football Universe videos. So let's get stuck straight in. We'll cover the main event, the big shock as it were, in the second part of today's show. But first, we have got to tackle the evening game and it was Portugal 6, Switzerland 1 the first time of course a team had scored 6 or more in a World Cup knockout game since 2014. Now, Portugal didn't matter, Switzerland didn't matter, the two 11s on the pitch. What mattered, apparently, was the name Missing from the Portuguese team sheet, it was Cristiano Ronaldo cast aside after Fernando Santos wasn't happy with his actions after being substituted against South Korea. Just another, another in a long line of recent Cristiano Ronaldo's, well, depressing 2022. Regardless, Gonzalo or Gonzalo Ramos took his spot in the front line and boy, did he make a name for himself. 
In terms of Switzerland, well, there was two changes. Edemilson Fernandez was in for Sylvan Vidmer at right back, or as we would see, right wing back. And Jan Sommer was back in goal after recovering from a bout of the flu. So, of course, the question would be, well... Obvious, really. Would Portugal be better without Cristiano Ronaldo? Just as many Manchester United fans have asked, are Manchester United better than Cristiano Ronaldo? And it didn't take long for us to have some sort of inclination, did it? Because the first real Portuguese chance fell to his successor, or would-be successor anyway, his replacement, Gonzalo Ramos. His first international star, an absolute... Bullet of a goal taken early, catching Jan Sommer unawares. There could have been about 43 Jan Sommers in that uh, goal. He <laughs> wouldn't have stopped it. It was, uh, wow, yeah, incredible, incredible finish. And he was playing through the middle, as you would expect. Jao Felix on the left. Bruno Fernandes on the right. In more of a, a 4-3-3, although you did have Otavio playing as more of a number 10 than Bernardo Silva. Bernardo was playing distinctly a little bit more deeper. Uh, meanwhile, of course, you've got uh, Rafael Guerrero bombing on a little bit to to ape uh, Switzerland's shape. They were playing as more of a 3-4-2-1, reverting back to Vladimir Petkovic times and uh, his near-decade reign in charge of the opposition. And uh, not only was Gonzalo Ramos a Benfica forward, the Darwin Nunez successor who's performed so well for an undefeated um, Portuguese champion so far. He was a good backboard, good finisher, good backboard for some passes and gifted Otavio with a, a great chance in the 22nd minute. But oh, aside from that miss, all was flowing well. Ramos was a constant threat. There was an energy about Portugal. There's a belief about Portugal that we'd uh, seen only in little spates here and there. They were a team that have dazzled occasionally but often get pegged back and um, feel... And to be fair, even throughout the European Championships in 2016, they've always felt ever so slightly restricted, be it the manager's so-called negative tactics. Now, as Cristiano Ronaldo approaches his 38th birthday, the uh, blame game turns to uh, turns to him now. Um, well, they could have had a second, if not for... Uh, well, Gonzalo Ramos could have had a second as well, if not for uh, Fabian Scher's headed interception. The long ball game was working for, for Portugal as well, and from the resulting corner, it was Pepe scoring in his fourth major international tournament after Euro 2008, Euro 2012, and the 20, 2018 World Cup. Yes, yes, I got that one right. <laughs> and uh, Ramos, could, Ramos could have easily been the first player to... Uh, to score four goals in a World Cup since the great Oleg Selenko. Um, well, he, even he managed five against Cameroon all the way back in, in 1994. But uh, unfortunately, he missed a couple of chances. But to be fair, hat-trick on his <laughs> on his first World Cup start. The first person, well, the second person to do that. Uh, the first person since Miroslav Klose in 2002 against, uh, against Saudi Arabia. I also felt we saw a different side to Zhao Felix, who was running the show. He was dropping off and drifting inside. He was absolutely all over the shop, really, and in a good way. He was fantastic. Otavio was great, much improved from his um, previous outing at this World Cup. I wasn't particularly impressed with him in the, in the first game he played, but he was fantastic today. In terms of Switzerland... We mentioned the reverted to the 3-4-2-1 of Vladimir Petkovic times. Here they were neither defensively astute as with the Petkovic team, nor were they 
great going forward as they have been in this World Cup at times under Murat Yakin. Now, they were by no means favourites for this match. They were massive underdogs and, well, they still had a chance. They've beaten Portugal this year before and, as we've seen in previous contests, France and Denmark for, for one. Nations League results don't tend to matter in this World Cup, apparently. Um, we did have uh, Eddie Milson, Fernandez. His positioning lent itself more to a back three. Ruben Vargas was uh, Vargas was his uh, colleague on the left hand side. He's more of a left winger, so him at left wing back left, so it's massively open. And Fernandez, his defending left a lot to be desired. A lot of the defending left a lot to be desired. In, in truth, Fabian Cher had a rare off night. For the Swiss, Manuel Akanji looked okay, but it, the rest of the defence were just all at sea, really. They started off quite well. They looked quite fairly composed on the ball, looked willing to play out, willing to press as well, centrally through the uh, the two number 10s, Jordan Shakiri and Gibral Sao. You had Braylon Bull, I felt, was probably the only, maybe a, apart from the goal scorer, Manuel Akanji, in a Swiss shirt who could probably cover themselves in glory. Um, they didn't really do enough remotely going forward they weren't quick enough they were slightly sluggish I mean Mbola was on the counter but he was the only one so if he got the rare chance to break no one really was really following him and that's really a problem with having Vargas at left wing back probably the only other quick Swiss player you would say that they've got in their ranks and he was fielded a little bit deeper so that didn't particularly help their only chance in the first half was from a free kick although very well struck by Jordan Shakiri and probably hitting the post but regardless Diogo Costa didn't know that fantastic uh, save fantastic shot all round but nothing from open play and really there wasn't anything there wasn't anything from open play at all in the game. I mean, Edmilson Fernandez chucked a threatening cross towards Diogo Costa, which he made a meal out of. There should have been no threat whatsoever, and he fumbled that a little bit. He's a little bit shaky, although he's he's, he's um, got very good potential, the Portuguese goalkeeper. And in truth, Switzerland's midfield was completely smothered. The three at the back wasn't working. They changed it at uh, halftime, but... Always lost at half time, really, wasn't it? They did. They did tend to get chances to uh, counter as Portugal eased off towards the end of the first half. But poor final third options again and again and again. The final, the final pass just was not there. Jordan Shakiri, if he was on the end of it, it wasn't coming to him. If he was the one playing the pass, he couldn't do that either. And um, even with the the, the the positional, the formational change in the second half, the midfield continued to be sauntered through as if Remo Freuler was, wasn't was there. Even Granit Xhaka, he was very vacant throughout the entire game. He'd struggled to pick him out of the entire team. If you if you watched it back, he wasn't really much of anything in this game. And Remo Freuler, shockingly, really, um, of course, by the time... Uh, Freuler comes off the game so uh, within six minutes of the second half you didn't really see Switzerland have much chance to change, see the difference in that change of shape because Gonzalo Ramos scores again and um, of course 3-0 down who do you bring on to save things from a Switzerland perspective of course it is the man himself the king Harris Seferovic and uh, I'm not saying that he did change things but uh, Switzerland did score immediately upon his upon his introduction <laughs> and he had nothing to do with it as you may expect Manuel Manuel Akanji ghosting onto the back post, fumbling in a goal, and even that was a bit um, 
a bit desperate, really, but uh, it got Switzerland on the board, I guess. No real, um, no, no real threat of a, of a comeback, really, as um, Rafael Guerrero scored the best goal for me. There's a lot of good goals. The first Ramos won, the lovely little dinked finish that completed his hat-trick was fantastic as well. The Rafael Leal curler was great as well, but the team move for Rafael Guerrero, it just summed Portugal up without Ronaldo. Everything was more fluid. The midfield was a bit more expansive. João Felix seemingly had more freedom. Bruno Fernandes too. Bernardo Silva was uh, at this... Um, he's, he's playing a bit more stricter this season. Obviously, that'll come with playing, playing under Pep Guardiola. And I think he's doing it perfectly. He's a little, a little less attacking as what he used to be. And the midfield was... Brilliant as a result. Ramos, far more dynamic than Cristiano Ronaldo would have been. And he's coming off a hat-trick, so how can he not start? How can Ronaldo force his way back into this team? You wouldn't want to shunt Ramos out to the left or right because why would João Felix or Bruno Fernandes deserve to be dropped? It is, again, especially coming with Morocco in the quarterfinals, you can't... I don't. I just don't think that Ronaldo will be as dynamic as Ramos against a team that is going to be desperately in a low block. They're going to defend like their lives depends on it. And having Ronaldo there who can be static, and if he does show for the ball, he's going to drift out onto the halfway line and there's going to be nothing for Portugal and they're going to be impossible to get through Morocco. With Gonzalo Ramos, he's going to play on the shoulder of the striker. He's going to move around a lot. You've got João Felix who... Seems to have uh, liked playing with Ramos, especially in this game. And Otavio was very good at getting forward and linking with Ramos as well. So it all looks it looks more like a team, is the uh, simplest way to put it. And, of course, Ramos's dinked finish for the fifth one was great. Rafael Leal's curler was and a timely reminder, really, for us that um, we've talk, been talking about the squad depth for likes of Brazil, France, and even to a certain extent Spain, but Portugal's squad depth, especially in attacking numbers. And even the uh, omission that went under the radar dramatically, João Cancelo, and you've got Nuno Mendes out with an injury. These are all players that didn't start who you'd expect to be in Portugal's strongest 11, and Ruben Neves wasn't in the team. It was just... João Palhini hasn't played in a couple of games. Portugal's squad depth is ridiculous, especially in attacking in attacking third when teams are tired. Bring on Rafael Leao. <laughs> a bit of a cheat code, really. And um, Portugal will be dangerous opponents for Morocco, but if Morocco can beat Spain, why can't they beat Portugal? And speaking of, well, let's cover... The earlier game, Morocco versus Spain in the second part in today's show. Stick around. Welcome back and wow, Morocco 0, Spain 0, 0-0, on penalties and the goosebumps have only just dissipated. But before we get to the main event of this game, let's go through it step by step. So Morocco, they were unchanged, and correctly so. Meanwhile, Marco Asensio was back in at number nine for La Roja, and Marcus Llorente was the third right-back utilised by Spain throughout this tournament, and the and the fourth successive change for Luis Enrique at right-back. Now, of course, this felt like a home game for the North Africans, um, despite only eight miles of water being between the two nations here, of course. 
um, Qatar being an Arabic country, there are going to be probably more Moroccans easily than uh, than Spaniards in the stadium, certainly in Qatar. And um, wow, yeah, fantastic support for Morocco. And for, even though it's a nil-nil and nil-nils do get uh, bashed about a bit, um, nil-nil, it was a fantastically dramatic game on the edge of um, the precipice, really, for <laughs> the entire game. That, that doesn't make any sense. But the uh, question really was, could Morocco contain the Spanish? And having just read you the scoreline, that was obviously answered in a in the affirmative, really. Morocco still haven't conceded at hands of the opposition. <laughs> Their only goal they conceded was a uh, an Aguered uh, own goal against Canada in a match that's... Uh, Really, Morocco, were good, were, it didn't look anything like they were going to uh, be eliminated in that final group match against Canada. And uh, a 2-1 win there, it didn't mean all that much. And of course, Morocco continued with that patented 4-1-4-1 shape as expected, pressed when they uh, needed to interrupt at least for the first hour or so. And um, I've got to take my hat off. If I had one on, I'd take it off for Sofian Amrabat. If he now, because Morocco have got to the quarterfinals, if he does not get in the team of the tournament, there is absolutely no justice um, with FIFA. We know there isn't anyway, but he's, his performances have been head and shoulders above any type of central midfielder in this tournament. Yes, you may look to other, other stars, like maybe from an English persuasion, Jude Bellingham, but in terms of doing his job to the letter, performing it absolutely perfectly, spotlessly, Amrabat has been... Phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. He's covering in that number six, his positioning, his ability to break up play, get things going as well to uh, launch counterattacks. He has been nothing short of uh, fantastic, really. And Rocco, they were they were fairly patient and nerveless in build up to get uh, those counterattacks going. Perhaps too nerveless at times. Bono was uh, taking quite a lot of chances <laughs> with his feet in the, well, in a number handful of occasions. Really, uh, he does make a great save to put Gavish shot onto the bar after. The some such um, some such uh, happening from that, but uh, it was ruled to be uh, offside. Um, France Torres's shot was cleared off the line, but still, even though it wouldn't have stood, it's quite clearly a warning sign for Morocco, and that was really as as cutting as Spain got throughout really the entire game. They were so so disappointed in Morocco to the point really that Morocco's defending across the 120 minutes, in my opinion, didn't look desperate at any moment. Even when so Morocco they, they sat back, sat deeper and deeper and deeper. They took off Bufal, they took off Enesiri, continued to sit deeper and deeper and deeper. Still in that four four one four one and it was still it well it merged into a four five one with how deep the midfield was sitting. But regardless, um they they never really looked like they were out of control of the game. They sat back from the well, from the 60th minute onwards. So for roughly half the game, Morocco sat in 40 yards from their own goal and just let Spain pass it around them. And Spain, like they did against Japan in the last game, it, incredibly, incredibly blunt, incredibly disappointing. And in Marco Asensio, false nine, probably not the best avenue. I felt he was vacant in the game until he he created one of Spain's two glaring opportunities, in my opinion, um, at least in terms of shots. Uh, he was ghosted in behind the defence and hit the side netting. Um, but Bono had it covered. He was never really ever going to test the uh, the Sevilla goalkeeper as well. Um, meanwhile, you've got Pedri and Gavi trying to live in the shadows of the uh, the Moroccan central midfielders. And with Busquets at the uh, 
at, at the base of that midfield. It was almost forming a diamond at times with Asensio, and it was just really about what Ferran Torres on the right, Danny Olmo on the left, could do in what sometimes could be interchangeable triangles with the uh, the wider central midfielders, Pedri and Gavi, and the fullbacks that bombed on, and if they could affect the central areas, affect the wide areas as well. I felt... Um, Fran Torres was probably, in staying wide, he was a lot more dangerous to Morocco than Danny Olmo was. All Danny Olmo was doing was drifting inward into what was an already congested midfield. You'd have Marcus Llorente go into what is his preferred position as an eight or, or a number 10 for uh, Atletico, which left Pedri almost as like an auxiliary right back, right wing back, inverted right back. It was um, it was bizarre at times, but it was, it was because Morocco was sat that deep and just completely nullified Spain. They left the uh, the wide men out wide and let them do what they, they want to do. Fran Torres, like I said, because he, he was hugging the touchline for the majority of the game when he was on the pitch, I felt as though he was a great avenue for a diagonal. The diagonals were never really, they were only lent on maybe three or four times throughout the game. Um, and when he was replaced by uh, Nico Williams, I felt he had spark on the right at times as a late substitute. They were, they, the Spain, though, they were lacking that that individualistic spark. They didn't particularly set many counter-pressing traps. They weren't, they looked, obviously, they're going to look a lot more dangerous on the transition and from the minute that they lose the ball, win it back again, it never really came to fruition all that much. And really the problems that Spain faced throughout the first half, throughout the second half, more so in the last hour of the game, it was just stereotypical Spanish problems, no penetration, brilliant playing the football, <laughs> easily, easily one of the... Uh, most um, delicate teams on the ball, but when it gets to the final third, Spain do what, what Spain do best. And Murata came on midway through the second half. He did get behind the defence one one or two times, um, somewhat of a focal point for crosses, but again, the crosses were very rarely used. And it was, again, similar to the last 30 minutes of the Japan match in the group phases where Spain sort of passed it around almost in a horseshoe, no no movement, no real... No, it, there was certainly plenty of movement, which is why they were able to keep the ball for so long, but no penetrative attacking movement into the box, into the final third centrally for any sort of chance creation. There was one chance, of course, with, um, with Sarabia, which we'll get onto in a minute, but um, aside from that, nothing, nothing from Spain. They didn't deserve... To win this game, yes, you can string together what would have probably been a thousand passes, but you don't win a game for a thousand passes. Yeah, obviously the game is for Spain to sort of lull the opposition into a false sense of security, pass it around slowly, almost play the opposition into boredom. Um, but for a team so defensively switched on as Morocco that they've shown throughout the entire, throughout the entire tournament, throughout the entire, even though it's such a short reign for the manager. They've not conceded a goal from an opposition player whilst he's been in charge. Yes, he's only been in charge since August, but still, that is an incredibly mean feat. Of course, Morocco, the best defensive team by quite some distance at this World Cup. So how Luis Enrique, how Spain thought they were just going to play the ball around them and hope that Morocco switch off was uh, was another guess altogether, really. It was um, quite uh, quite bizarre. Morocco going forward... They often went long, particularly in the in the uh, in the first half. They counted at pace, won fouls. Um, for for example, Ashraf Hakimi got a free kick. It was probably the closest chance either team came in the first half, perhaps even in the first 
it's not 90 minutes really uh, just whistled over the bat but then again Unai Simon was uh, was covering for it quite uh, quite clearly. Miraz Mazraoui as well did his um, did his bit on the flanks. Neither Mazraoui or Hakimi was satisfied with staying back. They were bombing on as they would do in in their day job at club level. Um, Mazraoui would um, press centrally for one certain uh, chance, hit one from distance, which had Unai Simon struggling a little bit. It bobbed and weaved in the air a little bit. And uh, when Sofian Bufal was on the pitch, he was he was incredible as well. Just as Hakim Ziyech was um, was brilliant, of course, having the verticality carry his team further forward. Bufal had Marcus Llorente's number the entire game, as Andros Townsend would say, they sent him for a bagel. Uh, in the first half, which was a picturesque as it was. And uh, yeah, I think it's maybe because of that that Pedri sort of moved a little bit further back. Because whilst Morocco did spring counterattacks, when they got to the final third, they was lacking a little bit of um, something, final ball, maybe the, the shots, certainly when you get to extra time. Um, with Chadira, he's threw on goal three times. He didn't quite know what to... Uh, what to do with it? Certainly with the first one when he he allowed Laporte to come in and uh, tackle him. The second one though, he forced a save from Unai Simon. And to be fair, Bono in the in the Moroccan goal had very 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 little to do in goal by way of saves. Yes, he claimed a couple of crosses, punched a couple of corners clear. Aside from that though, I can't really put my my finger on one save, crucial save that he actually made. Morocco looked more dangerous. They had the best chances, um, in at least in the first 122 minutes. And, um, of course, Spain had the most possession and territory, which is probably, if you watch the Japan game, that's probably what you'd guess how this game would go. Um, Morocco, having seen that Spain weren't really offering too much, by the way, of shooting threat, really. They were just content to sit in, frustrate, and um, in the very few chances they would get, very few openings they would get to break out, spring forward and um, try and create something. Of course, in the end, it, the chance really that Spain should have scored really uh, when Sarabia glances a beautiful volley, side-footed volley off the outside of the post is from one of those diagonals when they, when Spain were a little bit more cutting and when they'd opened Morocco up a little bit instead of playing side-to-side, slow, sluggish, languid tempo that they, they, they played for the majority of the 123 minutes all in all. And um, by the end, yeah, both teams, they deserved penalties and Sarabia wasn't content with hitting the left post. He hit the right post in the shootout while Sabiri, the hero of uh, the Belgium game and Ziyech, a continual Moroccan hero and uh, scorer of a goal against Canada, if I'm not mistaken, both converted their kicks. Well, meanwhile, Bono was just saving every single penalty. Fielded to him, he saved all three, saved from Busquets, saved from Carlos Soler, and then Ashraf Hakimi. Absolutely ice cold veins. <laughs> Madrid born as well, so it would have mattered a little bit more to him than uh, perhaps some of the others. But the just the delicate Penenka, one of the most delicate Penenkas I've ever seen, almost apologetically <laughs> lifted it barely off the ground as Unai Simon just dives out of the way of the ball. And for Spain, it's the fifth penalty shootout for them in World Cup history. They've lost four of them. The only one that they won came against Ireland in 2002. And of course, it's their third penalty shootout exit in a row after Russia at the same stage in 2018. Italy in the semi-finals and now back into the last 16. For Morocco, they become the fourth African nation to reach a quarter-final after Cameroon in 1990, after 
of course, Senegal in 2002, Ghana in 2010, and of course, Morocco become the first Arab nation to make a World Cup quarterfinal. It was history before your very eyes. It was a brilliant defensive display. And at the end of the day, you've got to say, Morocco deserved to be in the quarterfinals, not just for this match, which I thought they dealt with everything thrown at them impeccably, but for the entire tournament. Defence, now I'm not going to say that Morocco are going to win the World Cup, but defensively, that's how you do well in a World Cup. They are the best team on record defensively, and uh, we'll see what Portugal or Switzerland can give them in the quarterfinals, and we may well just yet see a first ever African semi-finalist at a World Cup. And if you can't mention, if you can't uh, realise now, I am recording this before Portugal versus Switzerland. But regardless, we've got previews as well to come in the third part of today's show. Well, after a couple of days break, we'll have the quarterfinals. So with the quarterfinals as the next matches, let's cover them now, shall we? Welcome back. So, quarterfinal time. Netherlands versus Argentina, Croatia versus Brazil, and perhaps we are set for four of the greatest quarterfinals ever. Who knows? Regardless, Netherlands versus Argentina, a World Cup match to end all World Cup matches, really, unless Argentina and Brazil both progress, in which case Argentina versus Brazil. Wow, what a topic that will be. Right, memories of 1978, of Mario Kempes winning the Golden Boot, the Golden Ball, the World Cup, Rob Rensenbrink hitting the post, ticker tape, Argentina, Junta, etc. You've got 1998, you've got Dennis Bergkamp picking the ball out of the air, scoring a quarterfinal winner in the last minute, and of course you've got 2014, where anuses were torn and hearts were broken in the penalty shootout in the semi-final. Always, always white-knuckle rides these games between Netherlands and Argentina. Never fail to disappoint the big games. And it's a battle of the wits between the eldest coach in the competition, Louis van Gaal, and the youngest, Lionel Scaloni. And, of course, Netherlands, I think, are one of the... Uh, one of the most unique teams in this World Cup. They put out a massive trap for the United States in dropping off dramatically. They man-marked in the midfield. Will he do that again? I, I struggle to think that he would, really. I think it'll be more of a, uh, a hatchet, well, not so much a hatchet job, but uh, a forensically timed job on uh, Lionel Messi and, of course, those satellites that surround him. Maybe he could see a similar plan in dropping off and springing the surprise, which I think... Having seen what Spain failed to do today, well, maybe the, the counter-attack is the best way to go about things. Messi versus Virgil van Dijk is a battle for the ages, and I'll be I'll keen to really see sort of Enzo Fernandez versus Cody Gakpo, two of the two of the more phenomenal rising stars of this World Cup who have been absolutely brilliant. Depends obviously on Cody Gakpo's positioning, but you expect Enzo Fernandez, more of a six, Cody Gakpo. Could be a 10, could be a nine, don't, don't particularly matter, I wouldn't have thought, but um, it, it is all set up to be an instant classic of a game. Two enormous World Cup teams with a lot of history and potentially, only potentially, the uh, challenge of Brazil in the semi-final. Of course, Croatia and Brazil, they've met previously twice in the World Cup, 
only reserved for group stage matches, though. 2006, where Kaka scored a screamer in an otherwise fairly dull game. And then you've got 2014's opener, where the likes of Neymar and uh, Oscar scored. And of course, um, they would have been an own goal in their Marcelo. So it was. Croatia, their Roman is, I suppose, is that when they get to the World Cup knockout stage, they always make the semi-finals. So, Brazil, be afraid, be very afraid of that one. Um, of course, Brazil will need another body of immense work rate in this game to um, beat Croatia's midfield. Now, Brazil, they are probably a team where attack is the best form of defence, where 4-2-4 could see Croatia pinned back. Most notably, though, I think could see Marcelo Brozovic pinned back. And I think Brozovic is the absolute key to this game because if he can break away from the uh, the attacking four or five and start to make little triangles with his midfield partners in Modric and Kovacic and you've got the likes of Kramaric and Perisic further forward, we could see... Could see a pretty end-to-end game. We also could see a bit of a, a sting in the tail for Brazil here. But Brazil, they've probably completed the the most complete performance of the lot so far in this World Cup, at least from the team still in the uh, still in the tournament. Croatia haven't really. They've squeaked through to the quarterfinals. Really, it's not really one of their one of their strongest tournament performances of late. But they always get to the, the latter stages. They always grind out results as well. And this will be somewhat of a massive test for Brazil. They, of course, the question will be, are Croatia tiring at all? Because after 2018 and the three periods of extra time, the two penalty shootouts, they managed to get through that and still be competitive in the final. They will be right back at it in the quarterfinals. Despite everyone's reservations, Croatians will just keep going and going and going. And uh, this will be no 4-1 walkover for Brazil, as it was against South Korea. And um, similarly, I think you'll see what Croatia and Japan did the uh, yesterday, which uh, was a bit of a tight affair. You'll probably have the opposition for Croatia's opposition probably having the better of the game. Croatia always, always dangerous on the break and chock full of world-class talent as well and young prospects as well. So it's all all set to be an incredible day of quarter-final day of football. That is, of course, on Friday. Before then, we have got a couple of World Cup rewinds for you and uh, we'll be traversing the 1930s all the way up all the way up to Colour TV, where we'll uh, take a look at uh, World Cup wins for the likes of Italy, Uruguay, Brazil, even England. Yes, even England, back when they won it. So I hope you join you join us for those ones. And of course, we'll be back with the quarterfinals, we'll be back with the semifinals, all the way up until the final itself, of course, naturally. But until then, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for watching, if you have done over there on YouTube. And until next time, see they up the three lines. Podcast Network.